anticipate God will do something. Despite everything saying that God has gone, God is absent, he will do something. One of my favorite authors, one of his prayers for this season, that God would grant us the grace for this season that we might hope and believe, but also the impatience of this season, that we won't just settle for uh, the, the things that we can see before us, that we'd lose hope, that we'd lose faith, but it'd give us anticipation that God will come again and do all that he has said. So, with that in mind, we open the scriptures. Let me pray. Jesus, we love you. We ask you to, in these moments, open our eyes that we might see you, that you would cause us to hear your voice and to believe and to trust. We pray for your great grace to fill us once more. We pray for the light of the world to shine upon us in this place, in this moment, we ask. In your wonderful name we pray. Amen. So this morning we're in John 1, and we're going to be looking at a few verses, John 1, 6 to 9, and then John 19 to 28, all about this man John. John 1, 6 to 9 says this, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. Now, my confession this morning is that I find for many years now these verses quite annoying, a little bit irritating, because there was a man sent for God whose name is John, interrupts possibly one of the most beautiful, prosaic, poetic pieces of scripture in the whole of the Bible. There was a man who's sent from God whose name was John. But it starts John's gospel with this, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him, not one thing came into being, but there was a man named John. Immediately after this most beautiful reinterpretation of the beginning, so that phrase, in the beginning, we're really familiar with, possibly one of the most read verses in all of the Bible, is the first words that we see in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God spoke. So we find these most beautiful poetic verses of the reinterpretation of the whole of creation history, that story of creation as God speaks and things coming to being. There was a man named John. And I don't have anything against people called John, by the way, but um, we find this breaking of a passage that is full of beauty, talking about the eternal word and the eternal light. And we find this man named John. At this point, it's enough for us just to note that we go from p poetry into prose. We go from talking about something eternal into something very fleshly, a person. And we'll pick that thought up later on. But this John, in the Gospel of John, is not given any more details to others other than his name is John. But we know this John to be John the Baptizer, the one in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, to be called John the Baptist. He's also, in this gospel, never referred to John the Baptist, but he is referred to as the messenger or the one who is a witness. 
John the baptizer, or John, as John refers to it as. I'm going to try and use the author for this gospel so we don't get to talk about John all day. But John the baptizer, the one that is identified to us in this scripture, serves a slightly different purpose than the ones in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the first thing we know about him is that he is sent from God. He's sent with a purpose. He's ordained and given a task. He's commissioned to be a spokesperson. We hear that he came as a witness to testify, this courtroom language of he has seen something and he's going to testify to the truth and we can trust and believe him. So he's chosen by God with a purpose and we find that in this gospel we're not looking at John the baptizer but we are looking at John the witness. So the first verses we're talking about in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and all things come through him and into being and it goes on to say this what has come into being in him was life and the life was the light of all the people. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overtake it. And the thing that we find in John 1 to, in 6 to 8 is that John is going to be witness to this light. The light that has just been spoken about of Jesus is going to be John's witness to us. So whilst we have John the baptizer, perhaps in John's gospel, we're looking at John the witness. And John's purpose is to witness and to testify to this light, which is quite a strange thing if you think about it. If we were to dim the lights in this room, make it pitch black, and then turn a light on, you wouldn't need me to tell, me that, tell you that there was a light turning on. I remember when I was young, teenager, maybe early, early, early teens, I went caving. And the instructor that we went down, we went into this big cave. Caving's terrible, by the way. I would never do it again. But we went in there, and they said, turn the light out. This is probably one of the few places on earth where no light can penetrate, and it is pitch black. You can't see anything. And then my friend turned his light on and shined his torch in my face, and I I'm still can't see to this day. But I didn't need anyone to tell me that the light had been turned on, yet this is the task that John has been tasked with. So why do we need a witness to the light? And before we answer that question fully, I want us to explore what we might mean by light and thus by darkness. And there's many uses of light and darkness throughout the scriptures, and indeed in modern parlance, you might say that was a really dark time, meaning a difficult time, something's gone wrong. But we also use these words throughout the scriptures. We see that this reality of light and darkness right in the beginning of the story of creation. The earth was formless and darkness covered every part of the earth. But in the beginning, the eternal word, as John would say, eternal word separates that light from the darkness. And we have these two realms. In the beginning, the eternal word speaks and the chaos of darkness is brought into order. And in the beginning, the eternal word speaks and life springs up. And this contrast through light and darkness continues through the whole of scriptures. We see in Ecclesiastics that it's, the light is described as sweet and pleases the eye. That anyone living in the light should enjoy it. But we also see darkness become a place and a friend of sin and death and darkness. The places where suffering occurs. The places of isolation. The places of loneliness. 
We see that also the, the dwelling place of those who are disobedient to God. And we find this separation of light and darkness in these moments here as well. John starts his gospel by saying that the darkness could not overcome the light and that John's going to witness to this light coming into the word, into the world. And in this light, we see that light in John's version of events, we see that light and life are inseparable and one leads to the other. Just as we saw at the start, all things came into being through him and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life and the life was the light of all people. And we might therefore say that since the light is life or life, light comes from life, Darkness is the realm of death. And that's a common theme we see throughout the scriptures. In John, light and life are inseparable. And the eternal word is the one who brings that life and light. If you want to take it to its extreme, we find that life is the place of life and goodness and kindness and beauty. And death becomes the reversal of that creation of light itself. We find that in many places the people of God have found themselves in the darkness and as we found last week in Isaiah in in exile and through the wilderness, a place of darkness and isolation, longing for God to do something but finding his voice silent. But these places of darkness become the places also of hope. Micah says, when I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. When I'm, when I'm feeling dark and isolated, when sin and disobedience is around me, the Lord will be a light to me. Psalm 27 says that the Lord is my light and my salvation. There will be one who will come in the darkness. And this is John's witness that there is one coming, no matter how dark and far off you feel, no matter the place in which you dwell, the light is coming into the world. I had a conversation with someone at work recently about light and darkness. And they wouldn't call themselves a Christian. And they were, t- they were brought up in quite a religious family, taught that the darkness was there to make the light seem brighter. That darkness was, um, and that was their reason for sin and destruction and things in the world, that things would be, therefore when you see the light, things would get better. And that you can't have one without the other. And Charles Spurgeon, one of the British preachers, he has a similar phrase that you might have, might have um, a metaphor that comes across. He talks about a jeweler who brings out the most precious diamond and he places it on a black velvet background. And he says that our affirmities become the black velvet which the diamond of God's love glitters all the more brightly. As though the diamond itself is not enough to be beautiful, but the thing behind it makes it shine all the more. And I understand the, the beauty of God grasping you out of the darkness. His love becomes all the more sweeter and precious. Charles Spurgeon also talks about the, the beauty of God's grace meeting you in your worst place. It's all the more sweeter to your taste is what he says. But I also fully believe with all my heart that the light is beautiful. And one day we will end in a place where all we need is the light of the eternal sun. Revelation says that there's no longer going to be a need for the sun. 
There's going to be no longer a need for the light that shines on us because the glory of God is going to be its light. The beauty and the preciousness of Jesus, his grace and his kindness, his glory and his wonder is sufficient for us as well. There will be a day where the darkness will be no more, where the darkness will have gone, but yet his radiance will still shine ever more beauty, ever more beautiful for us. And that's what John is witnessing to in these words, that yes, Jesus is coming into this world, the witness to the one that's broken in, the eternal word made flesh, light coming to us. But in this reading, for us in this time, post Jesus putting on flesh, we find that our anticipation comes to his return of the light will come again and, sh- and shine ever more brightly. So, John is testifying to the light, but what do we mean? What is the reason that he has to do this testifying in the first place? Surely people can see light. And there's this intriguing verse at the end of the, in John, verse 5 there. So it says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overtake it. And what this often is referred to as that if you have a torch and you shine it in the darkness, it is not like the darkness eats up the light. The light is dominant. It is there. But in other translations, it would be that the darkness did not comprehend it. It didn't understand it. Jesus is the light shining in the darkness, and the darkness doesn't understand what this light is. It can't comprehend it. It can't get its head around it. It's almost like John is telling the people that live in the darkness, that are blind to the light that is coming to open your eyes, to see that something different is at hand, the light is coming. John is almost taking people, he takes us as well by the hand and says, this is the light, the eternal word is putting on flesh, this is happening, and and that's so that we might be able to see the glory and the wonder of what is happening in these moments. And John is the first witness to the light shining in the darkness, but that witness carries on throughout John's gospel. So we might say that the purpose of John's witness to the light is that we might be able to believe through the eternal word, that we might believe through him, that we might find life that comes from his light. But also, and I like this, the the word gets translated in different ways because it, it has some ambiguity in it. In other places, in John's Gospel and in the other um, synoptic Gospels as well, the closest translation to it is it can't grasp it. It can't lay its hands on it. And we see that when Jesus is seized by the Jews just before his uh, death on a cross, it's the same word that is used. We see here that Uh, In Matthew's gospel, it says they plotted to seize him. They're talking about Jesus by stealth and kill him. And it's this same word that is used here for overtake. It's the same word that is used for overcome. It's the same word that is translated to comprehend and to underhand. But I quite like the, the personification of this realm of darkness that's trying to grasp and seize onto something. But yet as it grasps and it sees, it just slips through its hand. The darkness cannot overcome it. It can't grasp onto it. It can't hold onto it. And therefore, as children of light, as John will go on to describe Jesus' followers, 
the darkness cannot grasp onto you. Cannot grasp onto you who have been set free. You don't need to live with the guilt of the past. You don't need to live with the uh, inability to say no to other things and follow the way of God. It can't grasp onto you. You've been brought and set free. So this morning, take hope. The darkness cannot grasp the people of light. Be that in infirmity or disease or suffering. There will be a day when the light shines brightly for you. And as Jesus enters into voluntary seizure by the Jews, as he come, they come to collect him and take him to the cross, to the trial and then to the cross. We find also, though, as he's buried in darkness, the darkness did not seize him in that tomb, but he broke forth, and now we walk in that. Ephesians talks about you were once in darkness, now you are in the kingdom of light, the kingdom of the beloved son. And as John progresses, we see verse 17, the first mention of Jesus by name. We see his, um, the name of Jesus, the one given to him on earth, paired with this name, the Christ, Jesus Christ, meaning the anointed one. And Jesus, the eternal word that was in the beginning with God, and the one that John testifies as to coming into the world to bring light is now this person in Jesus Christ, the one that they know, the one that they can see. And through John's witness, people were to recognize that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ, the one sent by God, the one who uh, the Israelites in exile had been waiting for for many, many years. This light was coming in the person of Jesus in weakness, but yet no less glorious in his beauty and his light. And we find that John's witness has caused quite a stir as we move to our second part of um, the uh, reading this morning from verses 19 to 28. This testimony was given by John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from the Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny it, but he confessed, I am not the Messiah. And they said, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you a prophet? He answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you? Let us have an answer for those who sent us. Then they said to him, who are you? Let us have an answer for those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They had asked him, why then are you baptizing if you are neither the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. Among you stands one whom you do not know, the one who is coming after me. I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. This took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So this is a rather strange scene. And this is the first mention of John actually doing the activity of baptism. But we see John, uh, his identity and his authority being questioned. And it's interesting just to note that in verse 6, we see John being sent and commissioned by God. But here we see one sent and commissioned by the opposition, the ones that were going to ultimately end in death for Jesus. 
we see the sent one of God and the people sent to question the authority by which the one who was sent. So the priests and Levites come and they ask the question, who are you basically? And everyone's anticipating, edge of the seat, waiting for one to come to liberate them. And there's this sense in the air that these, is this the one that they're asking? Is this the promised one? But John confessed and didn't deny. He says, I am not the Christ. And he denies being Elijah. He denies being a prophet. But he does um, find kin in the words from the book of Isaiah, which we went into last week. So one question follows another, and he declares he is not any of those. He is not the Christ. He is not Elijah. He is not the prophet. And he uses this word, I am not, which is in direct con- contrast with the I am phrases of John's gospel of Jesus, who says, I am, which is the way that God revealed himself to Moses of saying, I am. So whilst John says, I am not, Jesus says, I am. And this is a theme throughout John's gospel of John denying his status in the terms of Messiah and Christ to point to the one who is, to be subordinate to him. This I am phrase is repeated throughout this denial of status and we find out that John says he is not Elijah and those of you who are familiar with your synoptic gospels would see, see that Jesus does identify John the Baptist with Elijah. Those who have eyes to believe, this is the one of uh, Elijah. And I don't plan to go into that loads because I don't understand it totally. But what the purpose of John's writing here is to see that he is not the one, that he is the witness to the one. But for Jesus, we'll say of John, all prophets and the law prophesied until John, if you're willing to receive it, this is Elijah. But John, in John's gospel, says that he is not that one. He says, are you a prophet? He says, no. This is the, the Israelites were looking for a prophet promised by Moses. And he says, then who are you? And he relates himself to the words from Isaiah of the one who makes the ways of the God of God in the wilderness. This one who, when we were far off in exile, there'll be one who in the wilderness will shout and make the highways of the Lord straight. The one who will announce the return of God to his people. So we find in this that John's answer, we move past who he's not, but who he is. And in the context of Isaiah, we find those captives desperate for this moment to come. And what does it mean to create this highway for God? What does it mean to be the voice crying out in the wilderness? Well, John, the author of the gospel, highlights that it is by witness and by testimony that this is what we'll do to prepare the way of God to see his arrival, to see him do the things that he has done. So God has not sent John to alert people that there's going to be a road built but it's going to be to call a people to see who is coming, to identify the eternal light and the life that is coming into the world with this Jesus. So therefore us, what does it mean for us? Well, John says this in verse 29, that the um, Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world has come. 
the Lamb of God in verse 29 is the second mention of Jesus' name. It says, Jesus coming towards him declared, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the one that John is here to announce, and therefore us two are the ones that both listen and hear and see our eyes open to Jesus coming into the world, but also for us to bear witness to his work. The one that was in the beginning, the eternal word. The one that was with God and was God. The one that was in the beginning has entered into flesh and put on flesh. The light has arrived. And we see in the baptism event in John that says, I saw a spirit descending from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remained is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. This is John's purpose, and it's our purpose in this season to recognize Jesus as the one called and sent by God to bring light into the world, our hope forevermore. And we see this figure of John in the Gospel of John plays this unique role. He's identified as this forerunner of the Messiah, is slightly different to his role in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But in this gospel, he's portrayed as primarily a witness to Jesus. And it's this confession heard from a human voice that paves the way for God to do what God was going to do, enter into flesh, humble himself to the point of death on a cross that he might bring many sons and daughters into the light. Truly, this man is the son of God. And as we said, the purpose of John's testimony is to cause belief in those that hear him. And we too, therefore, must in this season recognize the voice of John saying that this is the Son of God whom we worship and praise. But also, we enter into those um, words of this is the Son of God. This is the light that has entered into the world. As we stand now as his people, set apart in this Advent season, that Things might be busy, presents might be bought, but there is one who has entered the world. That the purpose of our testimony now is that Jesus is great, that he is Lord, and that he is coming again. We anticipate that day when he returns, of the light will take its glorious place forevermore. The sun will be no more. Not that Jesus will somehow become some sort of holy version of photosynthesis to create energy that we eat, but his glory will suffice for everything. No more darkness, no more pain, no more suffering, no more loss, no more infirmity, no more sin, no more disobedience, but his light will be sufficient. So in this season, we listen to John's words and we speak to our dull minds again to open our eyes to see Jesus in his reality but also that we might find ourselves impatient as we wait for him to return. I'm going to pray some words written um, by one of my good friends, I'd hope, Walter Brueggemann. He says this, In our secret yearnings, we wait for your coming, and in our grinding despair, we doubt that you will. And in this privileged place, we are surrounded by witnesses who yearn more than we do, and by those who despair more deeply than we do. Look upon your church in this season, 
which runs so quickly to fatigue, and this season of yearning, which becomes so easily quarrelsome. Give us the grace and the impatience to wait for your coming to the bottom of our toes, to the edge of our fingertips. Come in your power and come in your weakness. In any case, make all things new. Amen. Amen. Good. On time as well for a change. So, um, tonight there is no prayer meeting, but next week we will be here Christmas Eve celebrating the light that has come. Um, there'll be chance to stay for food afterwards, and there'll be, there was details in an email this week, I believe. There might be more reminders coming as well, but I will see you next week.